0: The New Yorker has called David T. Little one of the most imaginative young composers on the scene today. His operas Dog Days, JFK, Thinkin Sport, and Soldier Songs have been widely acclaimed. His music has been presented by the L.A. Philharmonic, Carnegie Hall, L.A. Opera, the Park Avenue Armory, Holland Festival, the Bang on a Can Marathon, Bam Next Wave, Opera de Montreal, and elsewhere. I sat down with David to discuss his LA opera off-gram performance of Soldier Songs coming in October, among other things. So, David, welcome to Classical Chop Studio. Thank you. So you're in LA. Actually, I saw you come through my Facebook feed and I reached out and I was like, you've got to come on my podcast. So thank you so much for being here. And um, it turns out you're going to be in LA for three separate kind of Events this season, so can you tell me a little bit about why you're here this time? Well, so I
1: just arrived, <laughs> like literally, literally just arrived from LAX, <laughs> and uh, I'm starting tomorrow, starting a workshop, the second music workshop for a theater piece, sort of opera theater piece. I'm working on called Arto in the Black Lodge, and I was actually here about a year ago doing the first workshop. And so now this the piece is, I've finished writing it, and we're going to sort of work through it and make sure everything works. And um, So it's a piece for Timur and the Dime Museum, L.A.-based musicians. And uh are a string quartet, and it's being developed with Beth Morrison Projects. So we're here to sort of dig into it and figure out what works, make sure everything works, and, and sort of build build it from there into a full production.
0: Timor, wait, Timur, was there another, was he... Or, Mm-hmm. No, or it's a band, right? Well, so I'm never playing with this group now. But wasn't it? Didn't they oh, really? have it in a different kind of or different name? Or well, so
1: the Timor so T- Timur is a singer, right? And the Dime Museum is the but band. The Dime and I think early on it was there were there were strings. So
0: okay. no, Thall, I know Andrew
1: Thal. I first yeah. learned of them from Andrew okay. Thal, who right. I knew from grad school. Right. And he, he's like, "Oh, I'm playing in this band," and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool and weird and interesting." And then I think the band evolved and transformed now as sort of a rock quartet, like a rock band. It's sort of like Oingo Boingo, right? They started as this, like, experimental theater troupe, and then they became a rock band. Right. Okay, so... I love that I just referenced Oingo
0: Boingo. (laughs) That makes me feel really happy. Oh, my God. We're already off script. No, just kidding. (laughs) Um, So then, okay, tell me then, this theater piece, Mm -hmm. not opera. Well, Let's talk a little bit about the evolution of, like, what's happening in the theater these days.
1: It is kind of an opera. I mean, I, you know, it's a, it's such a funny and maybe arbitrary delineation what is
0: opera and what is not opera. These terms are they're kind of falling by the wayside, aren't they?
1: Well, yeah, I think as composers and, you know, people who make whatever the work is are just making what they feel they need to make, and leaving it to someone else to say, oh, that's an opera. I mean, that's sort of how I got into writing quote-unquote operas. I wrote this piece, Soldier Songs, which is going to be coming to L.A. in October with L.A. Opera, and um, I didn't think of it as an opera, and then it was actually Beth Morrison who said, no, this is totally an opera. Like, if you look at the sort of arc and the way you're treating the voice, and, you know, this really has this sort of, these operatic qualities, and then sort of working with Yuval Sharon on the production, the sort of premiere production of the final version of that piece and and suddenly I was like oh I wrote an opera how, how about that you know That's and so then I got interested in it you know
0: so what did you have to you didn't have to tweak anything to make it become an opera right we d- so th- or you did a little bit okay not a so bit much though I
1: mean we basically so the original piece was commissioned by the Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble in 2004 and premiered in 2006 that version and the the piece is based on interviews that I conducted with friends and family who were in combat, ranging from World War II to Iraq.
0: Which are played during the yeah. which are played so as powerful.
1: part of the uh, part of the the piece. So yeah, so I guess that you know in the the sense of that as an opera based on documentary material, you know, I mean maybe that's sort of a different kind of thing. I mean, I, I think I was looking more at. Song cycles and kind of Robert Ashley and, you know, the stuff that I grew up with because I didn't grow up with opera in any traditional sense. I didn't really get to know the rep until after I was a so-called opera composer, you know. <laughs> Even, I mean, literally last night I saw Butterfly for the first time. I love it. Right, so, and, you know, it's weird that... I mean, I've, if you call Arto an opera, it's like the fifth one I've written. And so to have written five operas and never seen a Butterfly is sort of
0: blasphemous or something, but it's
1: the way it is, you know.
0: Right, right. Um, but in some ways, I think if by going that direction, because I listen to soldier songs, obviously, just, you know, on, online, streaming, and it really works. Cool, thanks. So... The album's a little different. We had to make it work for the
1: album. I see, I see. So it's a little different. The, the, the opening is a little different. But.
0: but this kind of component, this idea that um, the works can exist in all these different formats, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me. And it seems to be what's kind of happening, right? Where some operas I've noticed just do not work. At all? Like the, well, <laughs> when, you're <listening> <laughs> oh, when you're listening to them. Oh, when you're listening to them, yeah. yeah. And I mean, there are some that don't work at all, right? But, but, <laughs> but yes,
1: recordings <clears throat> are a tricky thing for opera. Right. Because right. it's not really... It's a multidisciplinary form.
0: And technically it really shouldn't work, right? If, <laughs> in, a,
1: in a way, right? If it's the, like the sort of Gesamtkunstwerk, right, then maybe it's, you know, the audio is just incomplete. And therefore, what
0: does that mean? You're missing yeah. layers of, right. of, yeah. The Bear Goppers are like that for me. Oh, I mean, really? I could never really get through Lulu. And then the other day I put it on and I could not, I couldn't stop watching like it was unbelievable. I love Lulu. Yeah. I, love Bo- I mean Berg. I mean, I could for me not is like stop everything. Yo, I little. think Votsek is just astounding. But I don't know about you, but yeah, just to put it on in the car just seems like eh. yeah, <laughs> right. It's sort
1: of. It's well, annoying. and it's just you know, it's not the. I don't know how that would affect your driving.
0: <laughs> like you know, like, in LA, let yeah. me tell you, <laughs> it's <laughs> happening already around you. But the soldier songs, I put them on, and I didn't stop. And in Ooh. fact, it was one of the rare times where I got to the end, and I, and I thought, oh, "This can't be over. I <laughs> want more." Oh, cool. Thanks. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see.
1: Well, and it's it's episodic in a way mm. that I think right. leads to that kind of an experience where you just sort of have event after event after event, mm. and they're structured in a way that is sort of pulls you along right. as a listener. Um, and hopefully, there are sort of like when this this one movement, "Steel Rain," happens, it's about you know maybe just after halfway through maybe you know two-thirds of the way in and it's such a different sort of experience there's no singing it's all all electronics all pre-recorded so really in in a live setting it's really just about the the lighting designer and the the director to make this scene happen because the singer is not there not doing anything it gives the singer a break um and uh so hope yeah, I like, I'm I'm happy to hear you say that it, it, it that that works, that it sort of pulls you along pulls and you, you along, right? then you you reach the end and hopefully the last movement, this war after war kind of lets you emerge out of it in a certain kind of way. You've had this sort of intense episodic thing and then you have this long 12 minute kind of long drone kind of experience that is meant to, initially it was meant to let the audience kind of come out of the experience, I think. It sort of does that. It also sort of ratchets it up in a way because of the, just what the notes are doing and what the singer is doing. You well,
0: know. and you realize for these soldiers that there's, the opera doesn't end for them, mm-hmm. right? What did you learn about the military or soldiers in general from writing this? I would say the biggest thing I learned was that the, the
1: experience is... Um, in a lot of ways, pretty consistent, irrespective of the conflict. You know, so things that my grandfather experienced in World War II, although they were different in a lot of ways than what my uncles experienced in Vietnam, there were some things that were shared, you know. And I think, um, you know, the people I talked to all had fairly different relationships with the military. You know, I had one uncle who is a Marine and is a Marine. I mean, he's not active, but, you know, his, the, the way he thinks about it is that he is a Marine because you die a Marine, right? You don't, you know, simplify. Whereas I have friends who were in the army who kind of don't want to talk about it, don't want to think about it. It's this part of their life that they, you know, they sort of look at it and think, what was I doing? How, how did I put myself into that situation or, I mean, one of the lines from a friend, Amber Ferencz, is, you know, I can't believe I put myself in that position where I would get the order to go and die somewhere. That one was so powerful. She's—I she, met her at Aspen. She's a bassoonist. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, and was an Arabic linguist. I mean, she's she's phenomenal. And I have another piece of hers, a piece um, that I wrote for Todd Reynolds called And the Sky Was Still There, which is based on her uh, story of coming out to her commanding officer during Don't Ask, Don't Tell and being discharged. It's really
0: uh, a lot of layers. A lot of layers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you feel like I mean I guess it's not it's, there's definitely not there's not a parallel, but as artists that we're kind of soldiers battling battling this all out as well? I mean, obviously not for our lives. Right. Yeah. I mean the stakes are the stakes, some, are, there, the stakes there, are different for right, sure. Right. Right. But a lot of the similar issues, right? Of what am I doing? <laughs> or why am I doing this? Or what is the real cause? I mean, I think everybody has
1: a battle that they're fighting on some level. I think the experience of a soldier is a pretty unique thing. Absolutely, I, I I wouldn't feel comfortable as an artist comparing my experience as an artist to the experience of a soldier who's been in combat. I think they're very. I don't think there is. I don't think there's a there is an experience that compares to the experience of a soldier in combat. I just think it's a it's it's you know, and I also don't think that uh, having never been in combat myself, I don't think I can ever actually really understand. Right. I can kind of approach right. understanding, but I can never really understand um, that experience. Oh, that makes
0: sense. That makes sense. But there's some for some reason art seems to be able to tell their story in a different way than just you know watching some something on Dateline NBC or whatever. Not that that I don't want to trivialize well, their stories. Well, so I've been watching the Ken Burns
1: Vietnam oh documentary, which is really tough. I find it. Right? it's the yeah. parts that are you know because it's you know there's the, the whole fundamental idea that the whole thing was a mess, uh-huh. you know that the whole thing should have never happened, and that the sort of the politicians were lying to the American people and it's the the layers of of things of that are upsetting about it before you even get to the right. human cost um yeah I've been finding it pretty tough um and i and I have to say, I find it really hard to to attend soldier songs performances. Because I know, I know all these people and I know how they're doing now. You know, I mean, I, they're still, they're still my friends and family. I'm still in touch with them, it, it, you know, some more closely than others, but I'm still sort of aware of, you know, what it is for them 10 years after or 15 years after. Or, um, and so, I, yeah, more and more I try to not go to more than one performance like i'll go to the opening and then i'll i'll say okay (laughs) i gotta i gotta go because it's 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 really i just find it really emotionally difficult has it
0: been cathartic for them to see their stories portrayed
1: a lot of them have chosen not to see the piece i sent them the recording when the recording came out and i've always been very you know said here's this thing if you want to check it out that's great if you don't want to that's i'm not gonna be offended or whatever like it's totally fine and i know you know, it's come up that some of my uncles are like, yeah, I couldn't, 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 it. couldn't do it, yeah.
0: Well, but it's it, powerful. Thanks. It's absolutely powerful. I think
1: it's, you know, one of the things that it's become, and it, this wasn't part of the intention when I wrote it, I just wrote it because I felt I needed to write it to kind of understand this this sort of constellation of people in my lives and what they had experienced. Um, but in, in especially working with Beth Morrison, um, who really took the piece from, you know, there was that one performance in Pittsburgh, but then she really, you know, took it up with her company and as really a lot of the... It now it's starting to get done by opera companies in their own productions, but for really a lot of the the majority of the performances have been through uh, BMP. And part of that has been connecting with veteran communities in the various cities where it's done. Um, and, 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 you know, and just sort of offering the piece as, you know, if this is useful if this is meaningful we're here and we would love to have you be a part of this and however in whatever way you feel would be appropriate and helpful and if not that's also cool but you know the show is going to happen on these dates and 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 very often we found we've had um
0: really great partnerships that have been built around these performances now could the narration be could be kind of swapped in and out to to kind of like include, you know, by community by community kind of thing. Th- you know, I've thought about that, and I think it probably
1: could, but it would be a lot of work. Right. You know, right. and it would it would be really it would be difficult um, because you would have to col- you'd have to first collect all these interviews, you know, and and you know all the interview footage. I mean, I probably talked with every person for at least three hours, and then you know pulled these moments out of those those, um, those longer interviews. So that times however many people you're talking to (laughs) times. So you really, you would, I would end up recomposing the piece really for every performance. Um, we have used photographs of community members, community members in productions. So when we did it in San Diego, we, it was a production by Glimmer, uh, Vida Tsikun and and David Anna Um, and they incorporated photographs from veterans in the local San Diego community, so there are ways that we do try to connect it to the local, local community way. and i think it would be you know it would be an interesting i wonder if i had to, if i had to do it again if i would have designed it to be more flexible in that way you know that that things could be swapped out but i think my hope is that, it, that that's not necessary because what these people are saying resonates so even if it's not your it, you know it's not
0: um Know, your individual story yeah, the, the essence and the yeah. theme is still there yeah. yeah
1: that's my hope at least
0: oh it's uh, um you accomplished that <laughs> thanks so uh tell me a little bit how your operatic the genesis of your operatic kind of life and how the operas have changed and it seems like Art toe is a little bit more of a theater as you said a theater piece mm-hmm. um what about jfk and i was looking um i saw some great video on vinkersport oh yeah and the audience was having such this a great time. Is it recent video? Or? Yeah, I don't know where I was looking. Maybe it was YouTube? Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was interviews with the audience. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah from uh, from Saratoga. So this is yeah, like yeah. complete opposite end of the emotional spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> right. With people right. that are. So this was an opera about people's relationships with their pet birds. Yeah. So, okay, so some backstory for that. <laughs> I feel <laughs> yeah, like this, this needs a setup. Yeah.
1: Um, so this is the first piece that I completed with Royce Vavrick who is my you know, writing partner, um, and we've written a, a lot of stuff together. And uh, we had started what became Dog Days. We had started writing that, and that was actually the first thing we started together. But we, between the time we started Dog Days and finished Dog Days, we composed Vinkensport or the Finch Opera, which is a comedy. Uh, and at the time we were thinking, oh, this dog days thing is so intense. We need to, let's do something light and, you know, kind of fun to just take a, a break from the little did we know that what was coming in dog days was so much darker than what we had written in the, the, the the first 25 minutes or so. Um, and so Royce at the time would just sort of go on these Wikipedia dives and follow links and just see where it, you know, see if anything seemed interesting and, um, so we had an opportunity to write this one act, originally with orchestra. This What just premiered as a chamber version, which is the premiere of a chamber version, which is nice to have. Um, and it was for the graduate vocal students at Bard in Don Upshaw's program. And so we had... We were, I think, given the singers... Like, you have these six singers, um, and you have... You know, I think it was supposed to be 20 minutes, and it was a little longer than that. But um, <laughs> And uh, Royce found this this Wikipedia page on Vikensport, which is a very old Belgian folk sport where people have these trained finches that sing this particular song, which is called a Suskuite. And the sport, right, is the bird is in a box. You sit in front of the box. Actually, you sit in front of your neighbor's box, technically. And you have a, a long stick, like a three-foot-long stick, that you put uh, tally marks on with a piece of chalk every time the bird sings this soskuit over the course of an hour. That's, that's, that's what it is. And then over, after an hour, whoever has the most Susqueets wins. Win, okay. So pretty simple. Yeah, better than like eating hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but there are all these crazy cases of cheating and scandals in the Vincensport community. <laughs> um, and so this is what we were really attracted to like okay, so somebody was like injecting the bird with testosterone to make it like sing faster, and somebody was um, they used to Thomas Hardy actually has a poem about this that we quote in the opera, where they used to they used to burn out the the bird's eyes with hot pokers so that they would not be distracted and would sing more. So there's, there's this a horrifying, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> horrible world of viking sport, right? Um, and so we we approached that. Um, the, the kind of absurdity of that as our in, And what it really becomes is about the owners, none of whom have names, all of whom are named, you know, by their bird. So we have, <laughs> you know, like the one, one of the Finches is named Atticus Finch, of course. So we have sure. Atticus Finch's trainer is the character name. Um, Hans Sox is another, <laughs> right? So Hans socks's trainer. <laughs> Farinelli, Sir Elton John. We had some fun with the, with the names. Um, and so we, we started saying, okay, so why, what is it that why does this person need to win so badly that they're going to either, um, you know, disfigure <laughs> yeah, torture this poor animal, or do something in their life that is you know, you know, abandoning, um, uh, some other part of their life for this. This bird. What is it about winning and the need to win that that drives them? So we we try to get into an actual you know a sort of deeper level with it, but on the surface it's sort of this absurd, you comic, know, yeah. yeah. And it was sort of you know, um, I was really when I was in college, I was really enamored by the uh, by David Ives' short plays in the All in the Timing collection, which are all these studies on comic timing, and their structure is you know there are these sort of absurd 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 profound moment you know there's always a twist like Philip Glass buys a loaf of bread is one of those plays and the ending of that is really beautiful and sad and sweet and you you sort of go on this absurd ride with him for a while and you sort of think that that, that those are the rules of the game and then he pulls a rug out from under you and it it's so moving when that happens so we played with that form and i think it it works nicely i think it's a fun
0: little fun little piece Tell me a little bit about JFK. Now, is that more of a traditional opera? In a a certain sense, I think um,
1: you might say that. It was commissioned by Fort Worth Opera to be a grand opera, right? So that's the tradition we were sort of tasked with engaging with. What does that mean for you? (laughs) <laughs> well that was sort of the question right. right you know what is that what like that we knew we couldn't have elephants right so we knew it was not aida kind of but but almost almost <laughs> elephants um we, yeah we i mean that was a lot of the, what that the process was was okay so how do we you know we're engaging we want to engage with the tradition right so unlike dog days which sort of you know the tradition that is in dog days emerged because it was actually in our DNA and we didn't know it maybe the same thing with soldier songs we weren't actively trying to engage with the operatic tradition when we wrote those when we wrote dog days and when i wrote soldier songs i wasn't even thinking about that um in the case of JFK it was really that was really present for us and so yeah how did that how did that
0: do so you have full I mean, orchestra?
1: It's full yeah, so it's full orchestra, it's it's nine principals, it's choir and boys choir. So it's big. I mean, it's like 150 people or something to perform at 125, 150 people um, just on stage, you know, in, in the pit. And um and the 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 topic, this is the first time that we've really taken, we've accepted a topic that someone else someone else suggested. Um, and this was Fort Worth Opera said, you know, what most people don't know about the Kennedy assassination, which happened in Dallas, is that the day before, he had a great day in Fort Worth. He had he gave his last speech that morning in Fort Worth. The the energy was really great. There was a lot of, you know, enthusiasm for him. And then he went to Dallas and was killed. And so you have this very, it's almost, I mean, in a way it's sort of this David Ives thing in a, a it, it's like a variation on it, where you have this really beautiful, positive, exciting experience, and then this utter tragedy. Right? So you're being dropped from a really high point. Um, so you told the story from the day before. We start at eleven fifty nine, the day before the assassination, and we approached it. I mean, it's so it's one of the challenges was that everybody knows the ending, right? So we have the story everybody knows, which is funny seeing Butterfly last night. Everyone in the audience knew the ending, mm-hmm. right? So, it's, in a way, it's not an uncommon problem in opera. But in this, even though it's a though good it was, problem
0: to have, I think. It well <laughs> but if,
1: in JFK, I felt like it presented interesting problems because in Dog Days, we had the ability to to surprise, and you don't you don't have that formally in the same way. At least, not with the ending. There's not a surprise ending that's going to happen in JFK, right? We right. kind of know more or less how it's going to go. But so what we try to do is keep the surprises in the form and in where, you know, how we get to that point. So we decided um, that we wanted to explore his subconscious. We wanted it to get kind of metaphysical. We wanted it to, um, you know, not be necessarily a straight narrative, although time is progressing consistently. It kind of jumps around in terms of, what's happening in his mind. So we start, we meet John F. Kennedy in the bathtub. Mm. Um, So immediately taking him off of this sort of presidential pedestal or this sort of martyr pedestal. He's just a guy in the bathtub who's got a bad back and he's soaking because his back really hurts. And he asks his wife to go get his morphine because he needs a shot of morphine. And she does. And she says, but Jack, we have to talk about this problem in our marriage, you know, This was Jackie's first trip with Jack after a long time away. Um, Their second child had just died. Um, I forget which was Patrick or Arabella. I forget which one of them died first, but this is the second. And um, they were, you know, they they had sort of come back together and sorted things out, but it was still a little tenuous. And so... But it could be any family at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so Jack takes his morphine. Jackie also takes morphine. And then we're off into their dreamscape. And we have Rosemary Kennedy, who had long since been lobotomized, come out of in the production from Texas, come out of the shower of the hotel suite and take Jack from the hotel to the moon. Uh, to the Sea of Serenity on the Moon, and much of that first chunk takes place on the Moon, where they have a scene together, and then he she sort of disappears and leaves him, and suddenly the Red Army chorus and Nikita Khrushchev are there, kind of like harassing him <laughs> and forcing him to drink, and you know, so looking at things that had happened in his presidency, you know, he had this kind of awkward meeting with Khrushchev that he didn't feel it went very well, so this is this anxiety that comes out. Um, it was the first time I've ever set Russian, which was the hardest part of <laughs> writing that opera was getting the Russian right, because I don't speak it at all. Um, but it was really fun writing sort of Russian chorus. Did you like.
0: have someone consult? Or? Vida Tsikun helped with, with that. Okay. Um, and then you just listened to what, rimsky Korsakov operas? Well, <laughs> I just, you know, I,
1: anytime someone t- said I had done something wrong, I said, <laughs> I said you're right, I'm sorry, and I f- would fix just it. Just fix it. Uh-huh. And that's, you know... I think we've gotten everything now, but even through um, when we did it in Montreal, there were still a couple little things that I had to sort of address. Um, so, yeah, so they're they're on the moon, and then we get to see Jack and Jackie uh, meet for the first time, and we get to see their entire courtship up through their marriage, and that's the sort of end of the first arc. Um, the second arc begins with Jack waking up back in the bathtub, being harassed, Within the, in the Fort Worth production by Thaddeus Strasburger being lassoed by Lyndon Johnson in a sort of gaudy Texas regalia kind of thing and all these Texas politicians um, who really kind of harass him and kind of rub in this sort of, the fact that, you know, Kennedy really needed Johnson to win the South and never really liked Johnson. and They had a lot of tension between them. And sort of exploring that, exploring the power dynamics between them. Similarly, with the Khrushchev scene, like it's sort of an absurd scene, but it's really exploring this power dynamic. Um,
0: as far as scale mm-hmm. and working on the larger scale, how was that different than?
1: It, it was. It was a big change. It was so. You know, doggies is amplified, and JFK was not amplified. Or is not amplified. So that presented certain kind of different approaches, right? So the way I approached the text se- the text setting in Dog Days um, you know, I used whispers, I used all kinds of different sounds that, you know, you couldn't use acoustically necessarily. Um so those were not available to me with JFK. So um in that way, I guess this is sort of how I th- I then went to the opera tradition and looked at, okay, so how did Verdi solve this problem? How did Puccini solve this problem? Um and uh so in that way, that's one of the places where it really engages with the, the sort of grand opera tradition, um, and it is big. I mean, there are these big choral numbers, there are these—you know—it feels pretty huge, um, and you know, dog days can feel huge but in a different way. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, it's all about the isolation of that family. Whereas, you know, you sort of don't ever leave this one house. They're always in this one spot. Whereas JFK, you're on the moon and you're, you know, you're all over the place. There's one spot in the, the second half of, the, you know, after intermission where um, Jackie's experiencing this sort of supernatural or dreamlike phenomenon where Jackie Onassis, her future self, comes, appears in the hotel suite and gets her dressed in the Pink Chanel suit. And they have this sort of Rosen Cavalier trio hmm. with um housekeeper who is also one of the fates. There are all these like levels to this piece. So <laughs> they're their fates, they're, you know. So I, I guess in, an, in a way that's another way, it's sort of a grand opera and sort of different from JFK, or sorry, different from Dog Days, which is very kind of like there's a straight line and it's really kind of lean and mean. And it just, the arc is just down, it gets worse. Everything gets worse and worse and worse. Whereas JFK is sort of more, it, it sort of uh, luxuriates, as Royce would say. A lot more. I like that. Yeah. So there are moments where just like, you know what? We're going to have a beautiful rose and cavalier tree, and we're just going <laughs> to live, and there are going to be apple blossoms <laughs> falling from the ceiling. It's going to be gorgeous, you know? And um, so that's, I guess, a big difference, is the narrative, you know, in Dog Days, it was a really it was moving forward fast, whereas in JFK, you sort of... It's you know, you have these moments where it kind of opens up a little more. I mean
0: you have those in Dog Days too, but I think they feel different in JFK. Yeah, when the uh third time you're in LA you're gonna Dog Days is gonna be staged, correct?
1: Is yeah, it? which is totally
0: crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wanna hear about.
1: Um I don't know much about this. It's the what LA County Performing Arts High School is doing dog days in November. Unbelievable. And I am just I'm gonna come out and see just to see it. I mean I don't you know, I'm not I don't think I'm involved at all in rehearsals or anything. I just, I can't believe it's being done by a high school. <laughs> I'm so excited. I think it's amazing. Oh, it's going to be incredible. So, yeah, I'm just going to go and
0: give some high fives. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Oh, these kids are going to be so inspired. So tell me a little bit about New so This is an amplified chamber ensemble. Yes. And some of the things I read off your website about it were that it's kind of um, exploring the boundaries between um, classical music and rock traditions. hmm And taking on relationships of music and politics. So that's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a vast uh, mission statement. How do you do that? So Newspeak was a group.
1: So it originally started for me in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when I was in grad school at Michigan. And it started originally as an all-improv trio with me on drums, Regina Sadowski on violin, and Jason Stein on bass clarinet. And that was a trio and we played a lot in the like year and a half that we were all in Ann Arbor together and then you know Jason moved to Chicago Regina moved back to New York I moved to Boston for a year and that version kind of fell apart but when I started at Princeton I said okay well I have this I'm here for a while I have this sort of support structure you know that was it, it would allow me to start something. I said, well now maybe I'll restart this group so I you know, made sure I was okay. I kept the name and, you know. <laughs> right. And then sort of started building it up. Um and, you know, I had been at Aspen recently, so I met uh Jim Johnston, pianist, and uh Yuri Yamashita who's our first percussionist for Newspeak uh, there. And I said, Hey guys, I'm gonna start this this band. You wanna be in my band? You know, and then I met Eileen Mack um, and she joined the band and then later would become um, sort of co-director of the band and then we would much later get married. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so it, it it sort of over the first two years kind of came into focus and had a lot of personnel changes at first and then we kind of settled in with the, the main group that still is playing together. And um, part of the mission, This the politics aspect of it was really a personal interest. And, you know, that's what I ended up writing my dissertation on and something I'm really curious about. And, um, you know, a lot of my works, um, not so much recently, but, you know, early you know, sort of in the sort of past have dealt with those questions and explored different ways of dealing with them and approaching them. Um, and then the rock thing, I, I don't know where, you know, what, where that exactly came from. It just, that was sort of where I was at the time and what I was grappling with compositionally. So it kind of became the thing. And we're also kind of coming, you know, this is, um, you know, in the, in the world of like Michael Gordon's DeCasia. Right. And some of those sort of big, you know, and like Glenn Branca, like that, even though what we do is kind of different in a lot of ways from both of those, it was kind of informed by those, those, those guys. Um, and so yeah, it's been an interesting path. I mean, we've um you know, for a while we were really like sort of presenting our own season in New York and commissioned a bunch of pieces and then we were put out an album on New Amsterdam, I like think one of the earlier ones on New Amsterdam. And then you know, I started writing these operas, and so then Newspeak kind of morphed to become the ensemble for Soldier Songs and Dog Days, and so that was like a different version of it. Then we did this dance project where we played a bunch of Jevsky, the Coming Together in Attica set with this dance company, and then we did that for a while, and we've done some work with Corey Dargle, and so we've, you know, had these sort of different, it organic tendrils, just- yeah, that sort of emerged. So we're right now mixing. Um, i working with Andrew Lee, who's mixing um, our next record, which should come out, I think, in April. Um, we're still sorting out the details, but it'll definitely have the Jevsky on it, like our version of, the, of those pieces. And it may also have a piece of mine on it. We're trying to figure out what makes the best album, you know, because nothing is— I mean, that, that's such a ridiculous thing, actually, because the album is like, who thinks about albums anymore? But we're thinking <laughs> about it. Um, well, let's go there.
0: To the album? No, just to albums in general. I'm a fan of the album. Yeah. But I think, I mean, there's something about the unit. The function of the album in general. What's happening with it? Or even like recording in general. Yeah. How how do you feel about that? It seems to me that a lot of it is just kind of like, most people are making albums as like very expensive business cards. Yeah. Right? But you seem to be more conceptual and... Yeah, well,
1: so there's a lot there to unpack, right? So, um, I mean, yeah, there is this, there is this sort of horrible feeling that you're making a really expensive business card, right? Anytime you're making a record, um, especially. But the thing is, the things that I've learned has been interesting. The records I've made have gotten less expensive as I've learned how to make them more efficiently. So the early, like that first Newspeak record, I feel like we raised so much money that now, like, there's no way we would need to raise that much money to to make even a better record than we did, right? But there was something about our perception of what we needed, you know, to to do at that time. Whereas, you know, the Haunt of Last Nightfall record, you know, we just were really smart about it and we recorded, um, we didn't record in a studio. We brought, you know, we recorded on the stage at, at Notre Dame University.
0: That was the one with so percussion? With Third
1: Coast percussion. Third Coast Yeah, okay.
0: yeah, yeah. That one was another one I just let go all the way through. She's yeah, it's
1: a 30-minute kind of...
0: It could have been an hour I would have been happy. <laughs> it's a great album, thanks so okay, so it's more conceptual than it seems. Is that how you're approaching well that, that's how I think about my pieces just you know in general
1: yeah, so you know I have the you know there's there's that piece, there's this piece agency, which is another like thirty minute you know piece in well, two acts for a string quartet in electronics, so there's something about that scale that I really feel comfortable with, and I guess it makes sense since i you know I write opera scale and form and
0: things being unified conceptually is all sort of part of that. So it that, seems that kind of like the album serves you instead of you going towards the album, if that makes sense. Well,
1: so I guess the question is the album, what is the album what is now a- in the, in the universe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Versus what I'm doing artistically, I think they're at odds. So I think that's an issue, right? That you have, um, you know, an opera recording where there's one track that has you know more hits than another track or something and it's not the track that you think is necessarily the you're like why is it that one you know and so there's this whole arbit it seems kind of arbitrary and you can thing. see this feedback Right, you too, can see um. it now and yeah um but you know I also I was having a conversation recently about recording a piece that's you know a shortish it's another it's kind of 30 minute collaborative piece that I did with um Again, with Glimmer, with David Adam Moore and and Vita Tsikun. And um, we were sort of debating whether we need to put something else with it. I was like, no, I don't think we have to. I think we can just put it out there, you know and and i i cited in this sort of email thread i cited um the new 9 inch nails album which is like 31 minutes and it's not an ep it's an like they they're considering a full uh, full length album and i was like well, so that's interesting so is that and i'm sure you know they're not the first or he's not the first to do this but does that shatter the album the idea that it's like a 70 minute you know it's as long as a cd can hold right if we're not printing cd's anymore then yeah yeah i mean so i think it's I think it's sort of fair game, and so you know, with this this Jevski project, the question of whether I'll also have this piece of mine on it. If we don't, I might just release that piece. It's like a seventeen-minute piece, but why not just release it? I mean, I, absolutely, you know, it I mean, doesn't.
0: you have an album with one track.
1: Yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> and why not? I mean, because it's gonna. As long as you can get it out there, and it it that's not going to hold it back from being consumed by its desired audience, then seems like it's fine when well, recording has really changed how i think about composing right <laughs> so and i think one of the reasons hey, that certain over. pieces are amplified or that certain pieces just have to be loud like new speak you know you can't okay so you put a drum set on stage with a classical ensemble so often i feel like you hear that and it doesn't it just sounds kind of Uninteresting. It doesn't to, to me. It doesn't sound like a drum set as I know a drum set to sound. And the reason for that is because this I you know, aside from you know playing drums, I experience drum set most in a recorded medium with close mic snare and mastered and mixed. And it's this whole other. It's a different sound world, right? So how can I put a drum set and electric guitar in an ensemble together? With a string quartet. With a string quartet (laughs) and have everything sound the way it's meant to sound, right? You have to amplify it. It has to be at a certain volume level because the drummer has to be able to play at a certain level because that's the sound of that instrument as I know it, right? And so I don't think I realized that at the time, at least not consciously, but it shaped a lot of my pieces from
0: probably the early 2000s. Um, well, tell me a little bit about the conception of Dog Days. I mean, is this you consider it an opera. Right? Is it is an opera. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely,
1: we think of it as an opera for sure. Um, and if, I don't know if we started out thinking that about it, but it definitely became that. And there are definitely arias and, you know, um, there's sort of a mad scene. I mean, it has a lot of the things <laughs> that, again, we sort of channeled, because it was in our DNA. And I should also mention, you know, I grew up doing a lot of musical theater as a performer, like on stage. So I, I had this unique experience where I was, um, you know, sometimes playing in the pit, but very often, more often was on stage singing and, you know, in these sort of classic musicals. And so I think I learned something from that just practical experience and not, you know, I wasn't trying to learn anything, but I think things just kind of um, kind of absorbed um questions of pacing or, you know,
0: stuff like that, that I think, um... Well, even more typically in a lot of the stuff I was mm-hmm. listening to you of yours are kind of genre markers. Mm-hmm. And, totally, yeah. That I hear popping out. Yeah, and. I feel like that's
1: happening now. That's starting to happen a little less. So it'll be interesting to see if, how you know, in five years if I'm, you know, but that was a big moment for me where, where I had sort of come up through school and, um, I, you know, I... <laughs> my schools i went to susquehanna university for my undergrad and the music the library was pretty good in some ways like this the recording collection was actually pretty solid but um you know i found the stash of perspectives of new music from like the 70s or something. And I was just like, oh, this is how one learns to be a composer is one reads such things. And <laughs> so I was reading these articles from the 70s about what it meant to be a composer, which was not very helpful for me at that stage because it really <laughs> sent me in a kind of wrong direction. And so I said, well, I, you know, it's just this sort of modernist ideal and this, this all this popular music that I love. Well, we just have to get rid of that. You know, we don't do this, this kind of thing anymore. And I did that for a while. I had that mindset for quite a while. And then at a certain point... When I started writing Soldier Songs, actually, and then Sweet Like Crude, which was written sort of right after it, I said, you know what? I I love all this music, and I accept that all this music is good, right? And if there's a dramatic moment that feels like it needs to lean in this direction or that direction, I'm just going to go for it. And I figured, you know, maybe the result will be terrible, and I will n- never do it again, and I can throw out this piece and start over, or it'll work, and then I will have... Moved in a direction, so that
0: was the real. That's where that sort of opened up. This is, I mean, what's called finding your voice. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's kind of a sonic fusion, really. In your aesthetic. Way, yeah.
1: Again, I think that's starting to change. I think I'm moving into a sort of different area now, which is sort of interesting. Um, and it was also really tied to the dramatic arc of these pieces. You know, because um, I think. One of the reasons I really like opera is it allows me to have that kind of diverse voice because you're writing these scenes that have certain qualities, you know, uh, at least the way that we do it, you know, or have done it so far.
0: Right, and various genres or idioms can help. Yeah, can kind of yeah. rise to the surface. Yeah. Um, so then do you think this kind of openness, this uh, that you went along with your intuition in this mm-hmm. creative process... Has led you to now where you're kind of changing, I guess your aesthetic, if that's what you're insinuating, I, or you're not, you're, or let's just say that you're not um, self conscious about that change, or you're not composing things to make yeah. someone else happy or whatever. Right. No, you know I definitely.
1: Well, I, I, I'm always just sort of following. I, I feel like I'm not really in charge. I'm sort of there's there's some like that. You know, I I don't have a choice in you know like at that point i had to embrace this sort of kind of aesthetic openness because i was going to be miserable otherwise i mean it was it was it was more than just a, an intellectual kind of realization that oh you have been doing this and i was like kind of unhappy with what i not that i didn't like what i was writing because i i still like those pieces before this but there was something where i felt like i wasn't being honest that it was it was an honesty thing
0: and did you feel pressure in those early days around you to kind of compartmentalize yourself or move yourself into a certain I thought idiom?
1: I I created that pressure.
0: Yeah, I think we all do. I,
1: it wasn't real. It was all in my head. And then, you know, when I got to, I mean, it's funny because then when I, so I went to Michigan for my master's degree, and I studied with Bill Bolcom and Michael Doherty, who are not going to, I mean, mm-hmm. of anyone, they're not going to, you know, push a sort of modernist viewpoint on you. That's the opposite. And I kind of resisted it at the time. I was like, well, but no, we're, you know. And so Bill, working with Bill, he kind of broke me of that a little bit. And he was just sort of like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what is, this doesn't seem like you. Hmm. And it was kind of sunk in. And then it took a couple of years for me to really get to that point where it said, yes, yeah, right. It's not, you know, it's, it's a part of me and it's a part of me that I still value, but it's one of them. It's, it's only one of many parts, you know.
0: And it was through self-reflection basically that you got to this
1: point. Yeah. And, you know, and these, te- you know, these teachers, I mean, teachers who would sort of
0: Allow, Allo- get out, yeah,
1: yeah, and would also to kind of call you out in a, you know, yeah, in, in a, you, in I a, like it, that. What are you
0: doing in a constructive kind of way? Okay, let me ask you this. So about pacing the commissions, because so I've been <clears throat> just kind of observing everyone, and it seems like some people maybe over-commissioned. some people can't say no to anything, mm-hmm. some people under-commissioned. Right. So how do you kind of navigate that?
1: It's it's something that I've been especially once you know so I signed with a publisher a couple of years ago, and that's been very helpful to just have someone to sort of talk through things with. Um, and there are some some commissions that you know, someone will approach you about a piece, and it's just so I have this I have this bad habit of I, I can make anything work. Right, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for me to do. I can find a way to make that work. It's a you know, and there were there are a couple of things that have come up in the past couple of years where there are some things about this project that are really attractive, and but it's not really I'm not really that excited about it. But I can make it work, right? So I try. The, the, I've had to teach myself. That's a little red flag for you. Yeah, yeah, okay. because I could do it, and I'll be very unhappy, and the piece probably won't actually turn out. It won't be as good as, you know, another piece maybe because my maybe my heart might maybe won't be in it or, but you know I'm a professional and I can deliver you know so there's this this sort of balance that I need to or this this sort of struggle between these two things.
0: And it's okay to say no.
1: Yes, it's important to say no.
0: It's not even just okay; it's important. Yeah, you have to say no. Self preservation.
1: Yeah, because you can. I mean, you know, it's a ta- it's a taxing thing writing music. Oh yeah. And well, the, you but, need to protect your your, your creative self. Oh,
0: absolutely. Self-care. Yeah. Um, but tell me about before you were maybe—before your career kind of launched, mm. when maybe there were more frustrating times where you wanted to write something, but there was really no reason to write it. So mm. what were those times like? Did you push through? Did you—how did that work?
1: You mean— uh, Like, I want to write a Sinfonietta piece, but I don't have a Sinfonietta (laughs) to play it kind of stuff. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, well, that's kind of how I got into concert presenting, because I would then just make a Sinfonietta. I see. You know, or Mm -hmm. I would put together an on-site. I was like, hey, you're my friends. Let's do this show together. And we would do a show, and I would get to write the piece, and... And that was really my first experience, you know, putting on concerts. And so when I was teaching in Virginia, one of the things that I put into the curriculum was that all the students have to put on a concert. They have like a concert, what is it, concert presentation something or other. Like they have a, it's a course requirement. Requirement. Yeah, that they have to help, you know, help present a concert once before they graduate. Because for me, that was vital. So smart. And make those connections and learn how to do it. yeah. Um, and learn, you know, screw up. Like, Absolutely. Make it disastrous. Like have a have a set change that is unbearably long. <laughs> you know, so that you know to put that piece first or what you know, those little stupid things that you don't Right. I mean, it's sort of like playing you know, playing in Newspeak and seeing Experiencing the frustration of poor notation. It's the same, same kind of thing. There are these kind of no brainer things that you just never encounter. And so until you're
0: living it, until you're in it, and you have an audience <laughs> that's like, oh my God, oh, this has been a 15 God. minute scene change. <laughs> like, what's happening? <laughs> this fog machine is not. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> David, you're amazing. This is good. No. <laughs> I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chop Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. Thanks for listening.